Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are. This is Chris, and today uh, I'm just going to present um, my first trip to Nepal, Disaster Becomes a Blessing. It's a blog I wrote, and I thought I'd just do an audio version of it uh, to save you reading if you're one of the people who might get that blog by email. Um, Inner Wealth, uh, it's at chriswalker.com.au. So, Inspired by meeting a fellow uh, fitness fanatic on Manly Beach, I decided to turn my appetite for adventure into a profession and, and do what uh, hadn't been done before. There are still, re there at the time, there were still regions in Nepal's Himalayas that are, even to this very day, unexplored by foot. So I chose to become one of the first to do, to explore an area in Nepal that's pretty much uninhabitable. Um, Using the skills of emulation and mimicry, which are really important, um, I read notes and I asked questions of those who'd done it successfully before. And remembering that those who uh, weren't successful in such an adventure are dead, so I can only meet the survivors or the good ones. I hired those who knew the skills I needed for climbing and surviving. Um, in blizzards and dealing with the elements expected while at altitude in the Nepal's Himalayas. I'd never been there before. I invested nearly half a million bucks, and that's serious, in training, camera gear and equipment. Um, and then I notified National Geographic in New York of my plans, and I expected them to ask me to write and take photos for them, but I didn't get an offer. Six months later, I was there. Uh, my guide and I were camped, acclimatizing at a high-altitude airport village, um, fending off sticky-fingered little kids, uh, trying to get inside our pack and steal stuff, um, and keeping ourselves active in the frozen snow and, and uh, engaging in um, a, li a little bit of um, exercise to uh, acclimatize uh, before we started the 30-day trip. And we were ready, or so I thought. You see, setting a goal and achieving a goal are two very different things. Setting a goal is filled with excitement, uncertainty, uh, adrenaline. Uh, it's a total antidote to boredom and depression. Achieving a goal requires immersion in both boredom and depression in order to achieve it. So I was prepared for the former. I was not willing to suffer the latter. Um, and here begins a great tale. So I'll go over that a little bit again, just so that you, if you're listening to this and you're in the car, I may have spoken a little quick. Setting a goal is an antidote to boredom and depression. Achieving the goal, you need to experience boredom and depression to get there. So quite often people set goals to get away from boredom and depression, but actually by setting it, they immerse themselves back into doubt and uncertainty, which brings up emotions and depressions. So sometimes people avoid doing goals altogether because they don't want to experience this foot on the accelerator, foot on the brake experience. So anyway, so what does it take to do something different? Well, You package up the idea of exploring the Himalayas in uncharted human territory, and one gets the feeling one needs to keep their ego awake and alive. Enthusiasm bubbles over, obstacles become challenges, resistance is futile, naysayers are discarded like dental floss after a good teeth clean. The energy of life flows, flows through the idea, the vision, 
the anticipation of an adventure. I had been addicted to this feeling home all my life until this Himalayan trip. I was always looking for something better. When I met my first wife, six weeks after we met and she moved in, uh, I recognised someone else in the room who I thought might make a better partner. And I had to convince myself over and over and again that I'd made the right decision. When I started my first business and uh, in, engaged a business partner, I questioned myself over and over again whether I'd made the right decision. When we rented a new factory, I had to uh, question myself because every time we did something new, there was always something new, newer that came on the market. When I bought a new car, the new model came out and I wished I had bought the new model. And that sort of thing. So being satisfied is a pain in the ass. It triggers an immediate response in the human DNA to ask, is it good enough? And the answer is always no. There's always a better one. You're satisfied, but you could be more satisfied. You're on track, but you could be more on track. You're on the right path, but there could be a righter path. And this complicated uh, arrangement that we have with satisfaction um, is, is, is built deep into our D DNA. The pursuit of an idea leads to an idea, which gives birth to another idea. The, the pursuit of an ideal uh, gives birth to another ideal, which gives birth to another ideal. There are those who would argue otherwise, but they are often very, very wealthy people who have reached a point where they can be idealistic and they've reached financial nirvana, or people who are in debt and tell you that they can be at peace and comfortable and earn a lot of money, but they're not. For the rest of the world, we vacillate between paradise and poverty. Satisfaction is therefore the goose that lays the golden egg. Satisfaction gives birth to an appetite to either defend it, we want to defend our satisfaction and therefore we fend off all intruders that might question us or argue with us. But and of course, in doing the, defense, the defending of our satisfaction, we become righteous and, and ultimately depressed. Or we reach for more, which is what most people do. And in reaching for more, we cause ourselves doubt and uncertainty because what we've got and we think we want more. And suddenly we doubt that where we're going is the place where we can get more of what we're going. So this is a catch-22. Eventually, back in Nepal, on my first expedition. It's 3 a.m. and we left the poverty-stricken village and the airstrip to begin our adventure. The snow was at times waist deep, but easy powder and quite fun. And the trail easy because my guide, the single guy I'd hired to take me on this trip, come with me on this trip, cut the way by going first. If either of us were in real danger of falling down a hole or something, it was him. After three hours, the sun started to rise. And there before us was a mountain range we needed to cross to begin our journey. A steep, rocky, ice mountain cliff range, big thing in front of us. There was no track. It was a climb. Immediately knew I knew I was going to die. It was too big. It was too high. My pack was too heavy. My shoes were too big. My hat was too small. My gloves were too loose. My glasses were too old. And my Gore-Tex wasn't expensive enough. I knew I would die doing this. And I stopped and I sat in the back of my pack. We drank tea from a billy we boiled and ate enough for, of, of our food for three days of rations. And we just enjoyed the heat of the morning sun. I had no idea uh, uh, what was to happen next. We just stopped. As a hero living his vision, being an explorer or on an expedition, I had everything I needed. I felt 110% prepared. 
However, I kept looking up at that ridge, that icy, rocky, steep, big fucking ridge, and I and I asked myself over and over again, what the fucking hell am I doing here? And worse still, I got the same answer every time. I don't know, and I don't want to die doing this. The dangers of imitation and mimicry are unfathomable. Disguised behind enthusiasm, until you get to the point of asking that question, do I want to die doing this? And then you might, like me in this moment in time, realize that the person you are imitating and mimicking at this point in time would say, fuck yeah, I love to die doing this. This is all I really want to do. And then you realize you're on a wild goose chase. You're living someone else's dream. Now, that can be a parent. It can be a friend. It can be someone you emulate, someone you imagine yourself to be. It can be a hero. But after five blistering, sad and miserable divorces, uh, losing all my wealth and my businesses, going up in smoke in the World Trade Center and a near crippling spine surgery and a host of other calamities in my life, I can tell you right now, this moment, sitting on my backpack, on the back of my backpack, I'm now describing to you has to be the darkest moment in my life. Now, I guess the moral of this thing is be careful what you wish for. Because I'm not a victim. How in the hell did I get so far into the wilderness, spend so much money, invest so much energy, engage so many people in a goal that turned out to be a total bullshit, a total myth? Well, as it turns out, uh, truth be known, I asked for it. Each time I've hit the wall with an emotional crisis, whether it's been a breakup or a business challenge that seems insurmountable, I create a list of things I need to learn to prevent and prepare myself for the next event of my life. I bounce and rebound and I bounce back with, okay, this is how I'm going to prevent that happening next time. It's all very self-diagnosed. I've never needed adrenaline ventures. My whole life has been one. And so filled with adrenaline and lactic acid, I've set out to create a quest to resolve what I've self-diagnosed as the cause of all my disasters, each one. And after my first marriage failed, I set about to rebuild myself. I included this statement. I've still got the sheet of paper I wrote it on. I want to go soul deep. I want to understand spirituality. Well, in retrospect, I may have been a little wiser to say, I want to go soul deep and I want to understand spirituality while keeping my health and my wealth and my business and my relationship and my dignity and my self-respect intact. However, I didn't. And here I am, sitting on my pack in Nepal, invested in this business venture, drowning in my own rhetoric, realizing that I don't really have the stomach, the physical prowess, the acumen, the wisdom, the experience, nor come to think of it, the photography skills, <laughs> now obvious, or the writing skills, now obvious to you. Um, to turn this adventure into a business venture. And so, like many other business entrepreneurs, my eyes, my goals were too big for my stomach, my appetite for, for suffering. So I turned back. Now, of all the millions of choices I've made that have changed the course of my life and the lives of those around me, it was this $500,000 investment at least 1,000 fans who knew I was going up there and sponsorship letters flying to every magazine in every corner of the globe. My closest friends watching with doubt, I had to turn around. I gave up. I surrendered. 
I surrendered to fear. I walked away. I reneged on the deal. I became a coward. For the first time, I had no excuse, no one to blame, nothing between me and the stated goal except me. I didn't even try. I was now soul deep, stripped naked, nowhere to hide. And here in this moment, I understood spirituality. Nothing to hang on to, but still breathing. And so what I asked for, I got. Once you've done it once, you've given up on something and survived, it's really fantastic. You come to see that it's all too easy to grab the tail of a great idea and grip it like it's the only thing you'll ever be, uh, you'll ever do right, but it's not. You let go one to grab another, let go one, grab another. These ideas about new ideas, about new ideas are endless and wonderful and each has to be grabbed, cuddled, if necessary, let go. Opportunity knocks. The gift of turning back was not just the sense of integrity. I had to deal with my own ego that had the mantra, never give up and show no fear. And, and, I, and all these things were deeply embedded into the subconscious of my own language. My ego was, to say the least, shocked at my decision to follow the usual, uh, not to follow the usual blokey way and, and do it regardless. Self-preservation had stepped in and the fact of the matter was, I really didn't want to die doing this. But my close friend from whom I stole this inspiration would have would have and nearly did. Um, I recommend if you if you would like to read any of her books, her book, um, A Lone Woman's Trek Across Tibet um, from Sorrel Wilby is an astonishing read. When I returned to Kathmandu after giving away all the food to my guide and all the bits and pieces I didn't need to his family, I was left with a bunch of expensive trekking gear and 20 odd days up my sleeve waiting for my flight back home. I rang the people back home and advised them that it all just came unstuck. I was tempted to tell them I'd broken my leg, but I hadn't. And so I just had to admit I was full of shit. After a few days in a cafe and sightseeing around Kathmandu, which uh, has uh, wears, your, wears pretty thin, I was desperate to get out of the place. I hopped uh, on the rooftop of a, 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 of a local bus for 13 hours and ended up in a place called Jiri and began what turned out to be the most exquisite adventure without the near-death requirements of an expedition. For the next 18 days, sleeping in ancient hidden monasteries, working from a dirty old map that I'd bought in a Kathmandu shop, and a few sketchy instructions scribbled on some notepads, desperately asking questions and directions from local farmers and getting more of my share of the digestive upsets and disturbances. I arrived at base camp in, on Mount Everest. Oh my God. I had sprained ankles, pleurisy, a night in a hospital. I had uh, several snowed in days with monks in, and, and stinky little smoky uh, huts. I nearly got stampeded by runaway yaks. And yes, I've been back there 50 times. I absolutely love it. I'm convinced that there are no mistakes. However, if we don't know when to draw the line in the sand, in my case, snow, <laughs> we do make the mistake of listening to our ego. A bird that has learned to repeat and automate choices based on the shortest path between now and the future. The ego is not a bad thing. What it's trying to do is save you time. My ego cried out to keep going because that's what it knows. It knows what it's learnt. Never give up. Face your fears. 
be a man, all good advice from an ego. But instead, I learnt this day in the Himalayas that our intuition and our ego can, from time to time, disagree. One will whisper softly, that's the intuition, while the other shouts, that's the ego. And the squeaky wheel always gets the oil, so the ego is the one we usually follow. It was just sitting down on a backpack, relaxing amidst the terrible reality of this mountain scene uh, when we were doing the expedition. Sitting down, having a cup of tea, calmly watching the sun come up, hesitating, waiting until the feelings cleared and I could separate the two voices that we could, well, I could really hear my intuition saying, don't go. And I, if I hadn't taken that break, if I hadn't stopped and taken time out, right now those mountains would definitely be the resting place of the unfinished life of Chris Walker. Now, in all this, we have to realise that time is our friend. When we hear those ugly words, I've got to make a decision, or I've got to keep going, or I've got to stop, we know we're about to blow it. The ego has a grip when we use the words got to and should. For the balance to be found, for inspiration to be heard, this intense tone must be allowed to dissipate. We can't fight it. We can use the four-column process. But by relaxing and sitting and using time amidst a very important decision, when we really are under the pump and we think we have to hurry forward and rush into something, by boiling the billy, drinking a cup of tea, taking a few moments in a highly volatile situation, the need for a decision passed and the conclusion became clear. Rumination is our enemy. Had I kept walking instead of stopping up in those mountains, I would have ruminated. I would have been walking and thinking, walking and thinking, doing one thing, thinking about another. That is ruminating. I would have ruminated. I would have had one eye on the path, one eye on the cliff ahead, and my mind thinking, should I or shouldn't I, should I or shouldn't I, should I or shouldn't I, and the odds are I really would have stumbled and fallen. Now, it's the exact same reason we recommend the emotional shower on the way home from work. Take time to defuse, to, to clean the muddy boot, mud off your boots before you get home. Otherwise, you'll get home and you could start ruminating while you're with your kids or watching TV with the family or having dinner, ruminating about a decision you have to make tomorrow or something you didn't finish today. It's best to, on the way home, between work and home, and I know you may work from home, take a few moments to sit on your pack, strip yourself naked of your ego, get clear, Allow for your intuitions to flow, and in this way, let time become your friend. This is Chris. Have a beautiful day. Bye for now.